I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hi, I'm Bob McDonald. Welcome to Quirks and Quarks. On this week's show, blue means go for a marine predator. Fleet fin marlin change color to warn their companions they're on the hunt. We really saw this beginning of this color change. It was only the attacking marlin that seemed to do it. Um, And they did it as they went in to attack the school, and then they quickly turned it off again as they finished their attack. And scientists studying the raw material used by toolmakers in the Stone Age gained new respect for the depth of ancient people's understanding. Those people were actually very knowledgeable about the resources nature offered them, and they were able to identify what material did in different situations, pretty much like like the engineers of, of today. Plus, a cannibal star earns its scars, how humans lost their tails, and the history and future of the boreal forest. All this today on Quirks and Quarks. You may know the striped marlin best as a trophy fish, the kind fishermen are proud to catch and show off. And you might also know that they're one of the fastest predators in the ocean. But beyond that, surprisingly little is known about them. After all, it's hard for scientists to keep up. But thanks to modern aerial drone technology, scientists can now capture the activity of the fleet fin fish from above in high-definition video. And that's how Dr. Alicia Burns and her team noticed something remarkable. While reviewing footage from the annual Mexican sardine run off the coast of Baja, they saw a pattern begin to emerge. The striped marlin seemed to change colors and become brighter before exploding after their prey. This has helped um, <clears throat> illuminate a new behavior of these remarkable fish. Dr. Alicia Burns is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Science of Intelligence Cluster, Humboldt University in Berlin. Hello and welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Hi, Bob. Thank you for having me. First of all, tell me about the striped marlin. Where do they live um, and how big are they? So they're quite a big fish. Um, as you mentioned in the introduction, it was they're quite a popular trophy fish. So, And part of the reason for that is that they can get up to sort of 200 kilos heavy, uh, up to 2.5 meters long. Um, and they're found all throughout the tropical sort of temperate oceans, so all around the globe, um, but a big population of them in the Pacific Ocean, especially in the Eastern Pacific, which is where we see them. And how fast are they? Oh, that's a great question because everyone asks this, but the real answer is that no one actually knows. Um, so you hear estimates of anything up to sort of 100 kilometers an hour, which is very, very fast. Holy smokes. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> no one's really been able to measure it. And they do go very fast, but we don't know if they go that, that fast. Well, tell me about the area where you were able to study them. There's something known as the Mexican sardine run. So every year about the October, November time, we get this huge aggregation of sardines. So millions of sardines traveling up that west coast of Baja. Um, And with that, obviously, comes a lot of predators. So the thing that's super interesting about marlin is they're usually solitary when they're adults. When this sardine run occurs, we get all these juveniles. We think they're juveniles based on their size. 
they're usually about one and a half ish meters long. Um, and we see just these huge aggregations of them just this time of year. We're really interested in this group behavior that they do. Every year that they come together, they have to solve this very tricky collective task of herding or shepherding. If you can imagine if you throw you know, a bunch of sheepdogs into a paddock that never been trained, um, have never interacted with each other and ask them to herd some sheep to another paddock, you might be waiting for a while until they could accomplish that. But the marlins do that seemingly very easily. So they work together, even though they've never really interacted with each other. They have this very complex and very efficient way of herding the sardines. Um, and then they have to keep them at the surface so that they can then um, attack them basically one by one. Wow. So they're they're herding sardines and hunting them at the same time. So when did you see this behavior where they change color? So we knew that they could change color sort of anecdotally for, for a long time. And if you ask any fishermen, they'll definitely quickly tell you that they've known that for a long time as well. Um, but we always sort of thought it was basically a byproduct of getting excited. So a lot of the, um, the fishermen that we do talk to have said, you know, they, they tend to get brighter when they get hooked on the lines. Um, and so we thought what it was was basically this byproduct of excitement in the way that maybe humans might blush or get red in the face when they exert a lot of energy or get stressed or something like that. Um, so we sort of saw bits and pieces of this, this change in colour, but we never really saw this full sequence until we had these sort of Goldilocks perfect conditions um, a year ago or so where it was sort of completely flat seas like glass and we could see straight through the water and we really saw this beginning of this colour change. It was only the attacking marlin that seemed to do it um, and they did it as they went in to attack the school and then they quickly turned it off again as they finished their attack. Okay, so you've got all these marlins surrounding the sardines and just, just one at a time brightens its colour? That's right, yeah. So a part of the thing that was interesting about the whole collective hunting um, aspect of the marlins is only one marlin will go into attack at any one time and then they'll sort of take turns. Um, and so what we saw was that the one that was ramping up to go into attack was the one that was always the brightest. Everyone wants to get out of the way. It's a very big fish with a very big pointed weapon on its face. So we think that this turn-taking one-at-a-time style of attack is to avoid injury um, so that they don't collide with each other. So that's why they do this sort of one-at-a-time thing. And the, the brightness is almost a signal or a, you know, a warning to their other group mates to get out of the way. Oh, I see. <laughs> if you have fish that big and that fast, that's like a, a head-on collision if they ran into each other in the water. They want to be careful um, and be very careful with not colliding into one of their group mates. Well, how are the marlin actually able to change their color? So they have a few different um, chromatophores, so color cells in their skin. Um, and the two main ones that they have are basically a black pigment, which overlies a blue sort of reflecting pigment. Um, and so what they do is when they go into attack and when they ramp this sort of color up is that they constrict that black pigment so you can only see the bright reflecting one underneath and that reflects this really bright blue sort of iridescent color that we see and gives them their stripes. Oh I see so the the dark color is sort of like pulling back black curtains to see bright stuff underneath it. That's right yeah it's a nice way of putting it so they've got this black sort of pigment that overlies their whole body um, and it gives them that sort of blue blackish gray sort of color that most pelagic fish have. So they've all got the same sort of pigments in their skin. Um, but the difference with the striped marlin is that they can actually constrict it. And that's when you, you can see the stripes underneath, essentially. How long does it take them to change? 
It's very quick. So in the color world, it's called rapid color. Um, so it's only a, a two or three second change that they need, which is very fast for, for when you think about color change in animals. So once one of the marlin does this, it changes its color, becomes really bright, and it's about to go in and attack the sardines. How do the other marlin respond to that? So most of the marlin seem to back off. Um, we do have cases where two will you know, light up at the same time. Um, and then you get what's called a block that will almost run into each other, but very, very quickly turn and, and avoid each other. Um, mistakes may happen and we get near misses. So what does this tell you about the marlin and their, their hunting ability and their ability to communicate with each other? Well, I think the basic thing is that we just don't know much about them. Um, we sort of knew that they did this color, but we really didn't know the function of the color. So, And it's likely it's multifunctional. So it's not just that it may be signaling to other marlin, but it could also be a type of dazzle camouflage. So it might even be doing something to the prey to make them easier to catch. Have you seen this type of behavior in other fish? Yes. Yeah, so we do know that fish in general, there's a lot of color change. Sailfish obviously are a big trophy fish like the marlin and they change color a lot as well. Um, also dorado or dolphin fish, mahi-mahi, um, they show incredible range of colors and they're also group hunters as well. So we're starting to collect videos of them as well. So they're off Baja, luckily for us, in the same place as the marlin. But there's a lot of different fish that seem to do it and a lot of questions still remaining as to, as to why they do it. Dr. Burns, thank you so much for your time. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Dr. Alicia Burns is a postdoctoral research fellow at the Science of Intelligence Cluster, Humboldt University in Berlin. I'd like to take a moment to draw your attention to a certain part of your body on the back of your front, your tailbone, that little nub at the bottom of your spine. Way back in evolutionary time, we, or at least our simian ancestors, used to have something there. Most primates and monkeys have tails, but a subset, including all the apes, which of course is us, have lost their fifth appendage, which is why we need coffee holders today. Just how we lost our tails has been something of a mystery, but a few years ago, a couple of cancer biologists started pondering it. After a grad student's tailbone injury, they kept thinking about this question. What was the mutation that led to us losing our tail? Well, now they have an answer. Dr. Itai Yanai is a biology professor at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine and was part of the team. Hello, Dr. Yanai. Welcome to our program. Thank you, Bob. It's great to be here. How surprising was it when you realized that nobody, as far as you could tell in the scientific literature, had ever tried answering this question? <laughs> I nearly fell off my chair, to be honest with you. I, I, <laughs> I, it was this brilliant student in my lab, Bo, who comes, and I was actually, to tell you the truth, a little bit annoyed at first because he should have been working on something else. There was a revision to a paper that we were doing, and it seemed to me that he was just goofing off <laughs> doing something else. But when he showed me what it was, I was amazed, and then we we started the search. We were thinking someone must have already seen this. It's, it's too obvious, but we looked everywhere and it turns out sometimes, you know, the simplest questions never get asked. Like how is it genetically that we lost our tail was never actually asked. <laughs> well, maybe if you had a tail, you wouldn't have fallen off your chair. 
<laughs> exactly. I would have had a little bit more balance. So where in the genome did you start looking for an answer? The two of us, Bo and me, we had known a lot about this gene, Brachyuri, otherwise known as TBXT. It's a very famous gene in the history of developmental biology. And when you think about tails and you think about development, TBXT is a gene that always comes up. So in a sense, this was like the usual suspect. You know, if you asked any developmental biologist, what would it be? They would say, look there. Okay. So how is this TBXT gene different in primates with tails versus those, including us, who don't? Yeah, that's the fascinating part because this gene does many things. It's involved in fundamental aspects of making the whole back end of the animal and also other germ layers, so many other things. So if you disrupt it, you'll actually make an animal that's not viable altogether. So it had to be something like a little bit more subtle. So what did you see when you started looking more closely? What Bo found was that within this gene, there was an insertion that was kind of like a mini gene that was present in our human genome. But that alone would have been not very indicative of anything because, you know, this particular element is a member of a family that's one million element strong. There's literally a million of these, and this is just one of them, just one in a million. And yet what's special about it is that if you look at which species have it, it's exactly the great apes that have it and the non-great apes, you know, the macaque monkeys and, and all the other non-great apes that don't have this element. So it seems as though this element is of the right age. It, it came exactly at this point when we were losing our tails and all of the other animals that now still don't have a tail like us and the chimpanzees still retain that copy. So do you understand how it works, how this insertion of this genetic element, as you say, leads us to losing our tails? Right. That was, I think, the true genius of Bo, that when he looked at it, you can kind of build a whole mental picture of how this insertion actually would be super disruptive. And the reason is that in the whole process of making a protein, you can think about a gene as just being a recipe for a protein. The whole production of a protein is very similar to the production of a movie. And the cell is like this movie editor. It takes the gene and it tries to make a movie out of it. Because what happens is the way the gene is built, it's really a bunch of scenes, like scene one, scene two, scene three. And the movie director knows how to splice together the different scenes. And when it's all nice and, and built, that's the protein. But the reason why it led to this huge change of us actually losing our whole tail is because there is this other element. And so the movie director now when it, they're splicing this movie, it gets a little bit confused that there's two elements that are almost identical. And so the scene that's in between these two gets tossed aside. And at the end, you get a protein that's a little bit shorter than the normal kind of protein. And what we found in the paper is that when we put the same mutation now into a mouse, we can genetically engineer a mouse that simulates the same kind of insertion that happened to our ancestors, that mouse now loses its own tail. Wow. 
What, what went through yeah. your mind when you saw a mouse without a tail? That was pure eureka. That was pure joy. You know, those kind of moments are very few and far between in the life <laughs> of a scientist. And I do remember that one. Wow. It was, it was just, yeah. Okay, so you worked out the genetics of how we lost our tails. Does this shed any light on why our primate ancestors lost their tails? We have some tantalizing clues. One clue is that what we saw in some of the mice is that oftentimes they don't have a tail, but it's not as though everything else is fine. They have neural tube defects where the whole backside that needs to be wrapped up and, and, and closed up doesn't fully close. And that's very reminiscent of a condition that we humans have that's called spina bifida. And so we, we have this notion that what if the reason why we humans have it is because of this old deal that we made in evolution. We said, you know what? We're going to get rid of our tails. It must be very advantageous for some reason. And we will even pay the cost of having this disease. Wow. So it comes with a cost. But what do you think the advantages were? Yeah, so here we go into speculation land. I think it's very tantalizing to speculate that this is linked to the transition in lifestyle that our ancestors experienced when they came down from the trees. It seems that when you're on the trees, a tail can be great. It can help you balance yourself. It can maybe help you grab onto things as, and, and serve as an extra appendage. But now when you come down from the trees, you don't need the heightened balance. You don't need it so much. And on the other hand, it also becomes a liability because let's say you're being chased down by a lion, then that tail is going to get in the way. You would be better off without it. So are you at all curious about what would happen if you fixed this mutation and <laughs> got us our tails back? Yeah, you know, I always felt like I'm a very adventurous kind of person. And now with this publication, I realize I'm not as adventurous as other people. <laughs> <laughs> and so I guess we would need some adventurous people for this tale project. <laughs> Dr. Yanai, thank you so much for your time. Yeah, thank you. It was a pleasure to talk to you. Dr. Itai Yanai is a biology professor at the New York University Grossman School of Medicine. When a star more or less the size of our sun reaches the end of its nuclear fuel, it collapses in on itself, forming a white dwarf. It's still hot, but it's a shrunken cinder, slowly cooling over billions of years. But don't let its size and age fool you. They may look innocent, but some white dwarfs are in fact cannibals. They've been found to slowly consume the remains of their solar system, including asteroids and planets. In fact, a team, including astronomer Dr. John Landstreet, has identified a nearby white dwarf that seems to be in mid-meal. It has what appears to be the scar of a recently consumed asteroid on its surface, the first time a phenomenon like this has been seen. Dr. Landstreet is an emeritus professor of physics and astronomy at Western University in London, Ontario. Hi, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thank you very much, Mr. McDonald. It's a great pleasure to be here. First of all, tell me about this white dwarf. Uh, how big is it and where is it? 
It's pretty close to the solar system. It's one of something like 150 of these objects that are within 50 light years of here. Uh, it's about the same size as the Earth. It's a uh, rather old white dwarf. It has been cooling for some billions of years already. And it's come to an age uh, in which it's easy to see in its light whether it's been having any recent meals or not. <laughs> well, what, what's a white dwarf actually made of, if I could get close to it? It's mostly made of carbon and oxygen. The, the history of a white dwarf is simply that it continues to be a full-size star until it runs out of useful nuclear fuel. And for most stars, stars like the sun, that happens when it has finished burning helium in its core. And so it puffs up, blows off about uh, maybe half of its exterior material, and the rest of it simply collapses down to being a body about the size of the Earth. What's left is mostly carbon and oxygen. And on top of the carbon-oxygen body of the thing, which is like the, the rocky Earth, there's a thick atmosphere, some of which we can see into, but there's a fair bit below that that we can't see into, but isn't carbon oxygen. And that's usually a thick helium lecture, uh, layer and maybe a thin layer of hydrogen on top of that. In the case of our white dwarf, uh, it's mostly helium in the atmosphere layers that we see uh, and with a little tiny admixture of hydrogen. Boy, sounds like a bizarre object. So what's the scar that you detected on it? Well, the scar comes from the consumption of some loose body in the old planetary system left over from when this star was a star like our sun with a planetary system. Once in a while, the big planets in, in the remainder solar system will bend the orbits of small pieces like asteroids until one of them gets close enough to the star to actually be accreted. In fact, it shreds when it gets fairly close to this star, and it comes in as a kind of cyclone around the star, which gradually falls or, or settles onto the surface. In the case of our white dwarf, though, the situation is different because the star actually has quite a strong magnetic field. Now, that's not wildly uncommon in these stars. About 20% of them have fields. So in this particular star, when the material started falling in onto the star, it was directed by the magnetic field to fall near the poles. This is quite a lot like the aurora phenomenon on the Earth, where you have particles coming from the sun. As they get close to the Earth, the Earth's magnetic field makes them fall into the atmosphere around the two magnetic poles. And when they hit the atmosphere and glow, the glow is pretty close to the magnetic and uh, rotation poles of the Earth. So you can see the aurora on Earth a lot better if you go north to Nunavut or Yellowknife or someplace like that. So in, in other words, what you're saying is that it's kind of like a solid northern lights instead of particles from a star coming in and glowing the atmosphere. This is actual stuff that's coming in like rocks and, and things. It is like the aurora because there you've got particles coming from the sun. So what do you end up with? What's the scar look like? Well, the material falling in falls mostly into 
of a region around the magnetic pole of this star. And we don't know what the, the spot really looks like, but it's easy to see in the kind of observations that we've been doing. So as the star turns, first we get to see one pole, then as it turns around, we get to see an, an equator, and then it turns back again, we see a pole and so on. So what we've been doing is watching this happen, and then we also measure at the same time how strong the signal in the light is that tells us that there is uh, material other than hydrogen uh, and helium in the atmosphere. That is, we can spread the light out into a spectrum, and in the spectrum are fingerprints of, of atoms like iron and magnesium and calcium and so on. So we can, we can see and measure the amount of those elements at the location that we're looking at. So what we see is, as the star turns, when the magnetic pole comes into best view, the amount of material becomes largest. And as the star turns and the, we see the view towards the magnetic equator, the amount of material that we can see reflected in those fingerprints diminishes a lot. So our deduction is there's a big spot around the magnetic pole where most of the material is still confined. What do you find remarkable about this discovery other than the fact that you're seeing it for the first time? Well, we are very interested in trying to understand how magnetic fields matter to a star, what, what effects they have on it. And it, it turns out this is one of the main remaining complete mysteries about stellar evolution. The fact that some stars have magnetic fields kind of like the Earth's, and many don't, is still just as puzzling as it was when this phenomenon was discovered half a century ago. So what does it tell us about how white dwarfs function? That's what we'd like to know. And at this point, we're still in the business of trying to assemble enough information about where magnetic fields occur, where they don't, what, the, what their structure is like when they do occur, how they change through the life of a white dwarf, because they do. Early young white dwarfs, ordinary ones like the one that our sun will become, very rarely have magnetic fields. But when they get to be as old as the, this star, the, the cannibal star, uh, it's quite common for them to have magnetic fields, and sometimes they're really very, very strong. Dr. Landstreet, thank you so much for your time. You're very welcome. Dr. John Landstreet is a professor emeritus from the Physics and Astronomy Department at Western University. I'm Bob McDonald, and you're listening to Quirks and Quarks on CBC Radio 1. Coming up later in the program, seeing the boreal forest for its trees, understanding the evolution of this critical Canadian ecosystem as it moves north. The, the pace of advance may not keep up with the pace of loss in the south. You know, we used to think that the tropical forests were kind of the lungs of the planet, but really it's the boreal forests. Are vegans actually unhealthy? Does cannabis ruin your sleep? And why are so many men taking testosterone supplements? I'm Mitch. And I'm Greg. And we're the creators of the popular YouTube channel, ASAP Science. Every week on our podcast, Side Note by ASAP Science, we explain the science behind a controversial subject with recent research, up-to-date studies, and ridiculous stories so you are entertained while, bam, simultaneously learning. We're here to make science make sense. Download Side Note by ASAP Science wherever you get your podcasts. For most of human history, 
Our tools were deceptively simple. It was the Stone Age, and our materials were things that already existed in nature that we were able to adapt to our own use. Wood, fiber, skin, and of course, stone, for robust, sharp tools. But we might have a distorted picture of how sophisticated using stone for tools actually was. Caveman Ugg didn't just pick up the nearest rock. Stone Age people were, in fact, skilled craftspeople who honed their abilities to coax useful objects, projectile points, axes, and razor-sharp cutting edges out of rock. In fact, a new analysis of the specific stones used to make these tools suggests the ancient toolmakers had an engineer's understanding of their raw materials— and as their tool needs changed, so too did the material they selected to make the tools. Dr. Patrick Schmidt is an adjunct professor of archaeology at the University of Tübingen in Germany, who's currently doing fieldwork in South Africa. He was part of the team. Hello, Dr. Schmidt, and welcome back to our program. Hello, Bob. Thanks for having me. First of all, tell me about the Stone Age tools you used in your study. Where did they come from? We, we didn't properly work on stone tools. We worked on the tool stones, the stones that people used to make tools. And that is obviously because those stones are the most important raw material in the Stone Age, I mean, at least from what we know. And, and we really wanted to understand what those people knew about those stones. So we selected tools that were made out of different stones at a Middle Stone Age site that's called Deep Clove Rock Shelter. And we looked what those tool stones were they made the tools from. And those were rocks that are called quartzite, they're called hornfells, they're called silkrete. And, and we went to the surroundings of the site and we identified where people had gone 60,000 years ago and collected those stones. And if you think about that process, it's actually interesting because what, what makes a stone a good material to be napped, that's called napped or to be flaked, and that obviously is the force that you need to put in to spall it off, to create a flake. And, and that's the starting point of our, of our study. Because in the past, nobody actually really knew what that means in terms of, of, is that a good material? Do you need a lot of force to make a flake out of it or not? And, and, and that's why we came up with that new physical model, trying to put those engineering values together, combining them in a mathematical formula that would in the end spit out a prediction of the force you need to make a flake from that specific raw material. So it sounds like uh, uh, an archaeological version of deciding what kind of metals you're going to make a modern tool out of. Like, am I going to make hard steel here for this knife or a drill, or am I going to use more flexible steel for some other application? Is that the idea? Yes, exactly. Because what we realized is that once we could, we could measure the force needed for making flakes from different tool stones, we found that there are tremendous differences. Some of those stones, it's just three times more difficult to make a tool than from others. Did they do specific things with those tool stones that are easy to flake and with those that are not so easy to flake? And, and what might, might be the advantage of this stone or that stone for this tool or that tool? And that's when we started looking at the different tool forms and what materials they were made of. And there are those tools that, and I'm going to give you one example, it's the example of the so-called still bay points. Those are nicely crafted, very thin pieces that are worked on both sides. And, and it takes quite some skill actually to make those tools. And, and it takes also some time. It's really labor intensive. It takes you 10 minutes to make it. 
And so we were very surprised that for making those tools, those still bay points, they used a material that was among the materials, of all materials we measured, that required the most force for flaking. And that is completely contraintuitive because everybody thought you need to have a good material that flakes easily to make that kind of tool because it's already so difficult to make that tool form. And, and, and we were really puzzled by that. And the resolution of this, or the solution of this apparent contradiction came from, you have to imagine, when you make a stone tool, you hit it near its edge and it will spall off. When you hit it a bit closer near the edge, the volume where the actual fracture phenomenon will take place is a bit smaller as compared to if you hit a little bit more interior of the piece. And in the case of those still bay points, I said they are finely crafted, thin pieces worked on both sides. Typically, the force is applied near the very, very edge of the piece. And where you apply that force, when you, where you hit that piece, the volume of the piece is really, really small. And it so shows that the material that people use to make those still bay points is a very particular material that offers a particularly interesting trade-off of different mechanical properties. Because when you hit it in a very small volume, and, and that's exactly what you do when you craft those pieces because you work them so that they're really thin, it's actually easier to work that material than many other materials that they had at their, at their availability. And now think of how these pieces might have been used. They're, they're elongated points that were hafted on the front part of a spear, for example, and used as the point of a projectile. So this material was just the perfect choice to make these kind of tools because it, is, it makes them easy to produce and it makes them extremely durable. Now, what about the types of rocks that they were choosing for the different tools? It becomes really interesting when, you, when we leave this period, the still bay, where they made those still bay points, and go to the next following period, which is called the Howison's Port. Because between the still bay and the Howison's Port, the way they made tools, the tool forms completely change. And they're not making those thinly crafted bifacial points anymore, but all of a sudden they would make little blades and for making little blades, you have, to, you have to hit the rock a little bit more inside and the volume in which the fracture phenomenon will take place is much larger. So then for the Howison's port where blades are made, well, then that material, which was previously used for the stillway points, would have been a really bad choice because it, was, it would have required so much force. And yes, what we observe is they also changed the material. They changed to another material, which is called silkrete, which is among those materials that break easiest in larger volumes. So it gives them a really interesting perspective for making those tools. Now, you can say, yes, but those blades, they were also used as projectiles because in some cases they were glued to spearheads, for example, and they were used as projectiles. Isn't it then a problem that they're not durable because it fractures so easy? Well, yes, it might, but it depends how important this kind of tool is for you. And when you compare making a still bay point with such a plate, so the still bay point will take you 10 minutes, making the blade just takes you a few seconds. So, so from that perspective, durability for this particular tool shape is not important anymore because they can be replaced so easily. So, so our interpretation of this is that they knew exactly which material take for which tool form and, and, and they adapted their raw material choices as a function of what they wanted to do. 
Well, what does all of this suggest to you about how well humans from this Stone Age period understood the properties of the materials that they were using to make their tools? Well, for me, it's quite clear that those people were actually very knowledgeable about the resources nature offered them. And they were able to identify different properties and they were, ident they were able to identify what materials did in different situations. And, and so pretty much like, like the engineers of, of today do it when they choose materials to make a bridge that has to, be, that has to withstand a certain number of cars per day or per hour. In the same way, those people of the Middle Stone Age, they were already able to choose the materials as a function of does it allow a tool to be a good tool because the material was right for it. Dr. Schmidt, thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. It's always a pleasure. Dr. Patrick Schmidt is an adjunct professor of archaeology at the University of Tübingen in Germany. The boreal forest is a green crown circling the planet, and the Canadian boreal in particular is the largest intact forest on Earth. It's not just a critical ecosystem for billions of birds, mammals, and insects. It also has a vital role in maintaining a healthy planet, storing carbon, purifying the air and water, and helping to regulate the climate. Understanding how the forest has changed over time is an important clue to understanding how it can change in the future, and how that will affect its ability to perform these tasks. Today, we'll hear about some unconventional ways that researchers are building that understanding. To begin, in a recent study, paleoecologist Dr. Sandra Bruker was able to trace a detailed history and evolution of the forest in eastern Canada over the past 850 years. And it was thanks to an unexpected source, trapped pollen found thousands of kilometers away in the Greenland ice sheet. Dr. Brucker is with the University of Basel in Switzerland. She completed this work as a postdoctoral fellow at the Desert Research Institute in Reno, Nevada. Hello and welcome to our program. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Why were you looking in Greenland ice to learn about Canadian forests? I feel like it was a mixture of me being naive, thinking that you can actually find pollen, which yeah, at, at first seems a little bit odd. And also, like, actually, I wasn't looking for Canadian forests. I was looking more like what may have happened around the Greenland ice sheet in like more the tundra vegetation. And then to our big surprise, we figured out that the source area goes like all the way down to the like eastern Canadian forests. So this is sort of unexpected at first, but then we could confirm that relatively soon by also combining our study with atmospheric models. Well, how did you know that the pollen in the Greenland ice came from Canada? Because we had this abundance of boreal forest pollen, like pine pollen, but also spruce and other like coniferous trees that don't grow further up than the boreal forests. And then obviously the question is like, well, does it maybe come from Europe? But then we also had like quite a few um, grains of maple tree. And that's like typical for Canada, right? This is your national tree, so to say. And so you're like, okay, well, the main source must really be that. How rare is it to have pollen records in ice like this? It's relatively rare, I would say, and especially in Greenland, because previous studies, like there were a few attempts to find pollen in Greenland ice, but they usually looked like a few millimeters of, of water, so like tiny amounts. And so they would find one grain, but one grain doesn't tell you a story. And 
in a way, like I, I got this chance provided by my supervisor at the Desert Research Institute, Joe McConnell, to work with big quantities of ice. And so we were able to find enough grains to actually put together vegetation history over time. And so this was the first to be able to pull that off. Now, what does the pollen in ice allow you to do that you can't do with other pollen studies? Well, the big advantage, I would say, is that you're far away from any vegetation. So you're not collecting like what is happening directly around the site because you don't have any local sources. So you're immediately collecting a much bigger area. And with a nice core, you have wonderful chronologies down to like a precision of a year. And by that, you get like a bigger picture of like the, the dynamics happening. Yes, I, I've seen ice cores and they have all these layers in them because the, the ice is laid down year by year. So it's like a calendar going back in time. Yeah, it, it definitely is a calendar and like most fascinating one, I would say, because you have also like all these other like pollution tracers, you have climate tracers, you have fire tracers, you have so much information that you can put together and combine with a pollen study. Well, take me through your findings. What was the earliest picture of Canadian forest that you were able to get? So what we found interesting is that we start in the medieval warm period and we see like a relatively like like more like open landscape. We see less of the pine pollen. And then once the little ice age hit and it gets colder, we see an advancement of pine pollen. And at first we were like, well, this kind of looks like contradictory that we have more boreal forests when it gets colder because plants usually don't like it when it gets cold. However, if you think about them not like moving to the north, but rather like expanding towards the south, then it suddenly makes sense that these like more colder adapted forests were able to expand. When, when you say the Little Ice Age, what time period are you speaking about? Well, before 1400 is the medieval climate period, and then after 1400 is the Little Ice Age that starts, and then it like goes up until around 1700. But what we've then found interesting is that already before the end of the Little Ice Age, around 1650, we observed this decline again of the boreal forests. And that aligns with the first human settlers that came to the area, and they precede the climate-induced warming by about 50 years. Why would the changes be so dramatic when the humans arrived? These pollen grains, they are indicative of white pine and other pine species. And it's, it's very interesting because the European settlers, they came to North America and they were like specifically looking for white pine because they could use them as ship masts. And there is like abundant literature and like and historical sources describing how they would like go like deep into the forest to cut like beautiful straight white pine and like specifically take them out of the forest. Now, how do you know that the decline in forest was due to the logging of, of these pine trees and not forest fires? Well, in addition, we also studied microscopic charcoal in the ice core. So this is about the same size as pollen grains. And we see over these 850 years, essentially no changes in the microscopic charcoal concentration. So we don't really see a large scale change of fire activity. So obviously there were fires, but we couldn't see like clear like patterns in like phases from going from low fire activity towards high fire activity and back. Okay. And so that's why we, we excluded fire as a driver. Okay, so there was a decline when the first European settlers arrived. What about as human development ramped up with uh, industrialization and burning fossil fuels? What did you see there? 
it remained low for it for the the boreal forest they remained at lower levels sort of like similar as we had in the medieval climate optimum that also makes sense because the climate got warmer so it's like a combination of climate and humans but then interestingly what we observed in the 20th century is like a little bit like not a big increase but a little bit of an increase again of pine pollen because they could like kind of like come back and encroach and like formerly um, used areas that are now abandoned. Well, I mean, what were people doing that, that allowed the, the forest to recover for a brief period? It's something that we observe also in Switzerland that in a lot of like marginal areas, there was like a lot of agriculture at first. And then in the recent years, it's more like towards intensification and also like afforestation again. Like essentially, we only use the best areas at this point. It's mostly it's mostly that it's, it still has to do with like human activities and the way we use the land. Was there anything that you saw in this pollen that surprised you? I feel like everything surprised me, like from the fact that we could find enough pollen grains to actually come up with a decent vegetation <laughs> history. Then just the thought that you have pollen grains that travel over two, three thousand kilometers. And not just a few grains, but like really enough that we can use this for a robust record. Like for me, this was fascinating. So based on all of this uh, change that you've seen over time in the Canadian boreal forest, what does that tell you about how it might change in the future? <laughs> That's a tough question. I mean, obviously, us as long-term ecologists, we, we like to use our data also to help predict what happens in the future by providing baselines and kind of like understanding processes over time. But that, that being said, like we, we can observe what happened with climate in the past and how these forests have been reacting. But current climate change is so fast and human activities are so intense. I think it would be overstating to say that we can actually predict what's happening. It's scary how fast climate and earth is changing and what role the humans are playing. This is how I see it in recent years. Dr. Brugger, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Dr. Sandra Brugger is a paleoecologist with the University of Basel in Switzerland. As we just heard, the boreal forest and its trees have changed over time, and we know that they will continue to change both naturally and because of the way we are changing their environment. And we'd like to be able to predict that. We may not have a crystal ball, but we do have science to help us understand what is to come. One insight we can glean is by looking at tree lines, where the trees stop growing and the next ecosystem begins. Because as the climate warms, tree lines are shifting, but in some unexpected ways. That's what led Colin Maher and his colleagues on an epic expedition into the Brooks Mountains in Alaska to learn more about what determines a tree line and what that means about where the boreal forest might move. And what they found is that, curiously, melting sea ice may be playing a role in reshaping the forest. Dr. Maher is an O-Rise Fellow with the United States Forest Service and affiliate faculty at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. Dr. Maher, welcome to Quirks and Quarks. Thanks, Bob. It's good to be here. First of all, tell me about this epic adventure you went on to study the tree lines. What's the environment like up there? Yeah, so the Brooks Range are, is the mountain range that's kind of the crown of, of northern Alaska. And it, it exists entirely above the Arctic Circle. 
It's very remote. The range spans something like a thousand kilometers um, east to west. And there's a single road that goes south to north. And in the Brooks Range, the Brooks Range is, is kind of unique uh, in that the northern tree line coincides with a mountain range. So, so you see these elevational tree lines on the mountain slopes, as well as tree lines in these low kind of permafrost, more tundra-like environments. Well, if there was only one road up there, how did you and your team explore the tree line? We mostly accessed our sites by bush plane. We would take a bush plane from you know one of the local villages, and the pilots would drop us off uh, on gravel bars or in lakes with float planes, uh, and we would go from there. What a true wilderness experience. Absolutely. Now, before your study, what did we know about how tree lines form? For o- over 200 years, there's been an idea about tree lines are linked globally with temperature, and that cold temperature determines the tree line. That is something that is continues to this day, and we actually still debate about, believe it or not. Um, what we're observing now, we have a lot of warming have, happening in the Arctic, and we don't see universal advance of tree lines. Some are not advancing at all, and we see different rates of, of advance, even though the temperature is, is warming everywhere. So what this indicates to us is that temperature may play some kind of overarching role, but on the scale of what's actually happening on the ground there clearly are other factors that are influencing the rate of advance or whether they advance at all. So why then uh, do you think the tree lines are shifting in strange ways and, and non-uniform ways? Well, that's exactly our question. So it's it's definitely not advancing universally. There are some that aren't advancing at all. There's no evidence as of yet that they are advancing. Uh, for example, in eastern Siberia, and in northern Canada, between Hudson Bay and Alaska, the evidence shows that those forests are not advancing. They are advancing in other locations. One thing that we've noticed with other studies is that there seems to be a relationship between the growth or health of, of trees at tree lines and their nutrient status, and how much nutrients they have available. And that that may be linked to many other things, one of which is the amount of snow that those trees receive in the winter. And the link there might be that snow does provide insulation. We know that uh, to the soil. And so during very cold winters, if you have more uh, snow insulating the soil, you get more microbial nutrient cycling over the winter. And actually microbes are still active if it's, if the soil stays warm enough. And if there's enough snow, it won't dip too much below zero degrees Celsius. So what determines whether or not there's going to be more or less snow? One idea is that the rapid disappearance of Arctic sea ice is something that might drive differences in precipitation. So when you have lots of sea ice and you have sea ice cover it, it acts sort of like a landmass. So, so you, if you have the water locked up in ice, there's not that much evaporation happening. Um, you know, as if those tree lines were somewhere deep inside of a continent, away from water. But where you have open water, you can have a lot more evaporation. You can have a lot more precipitation recycling locally. And there, there's definitely evidence of that process. You know, it's very complex, but there's some evidence that that, that process is happening around the Arctic. That's sort of like uh, what we hear about in the south here, the lake effect, where you have open water, then you get a snow belt just downwind of that. Yes, this is like an oceanic version of the lake effect. Okay. 
Now we're hearing a lot about ice loss in the Arctic. So, yeah. is this how how is that affecting how the boreal forest is moving north? We know that there's a link between the decline in in sea ice and the advance of forests. You know, I mentioned that we extracted tree cores and that we're able to examine the growth of trees over time uh, through the variation in their ring widths. These ring widths series are highly correlated with the sea ice, or the rather I should say the open water time series over time, and much more so than, than the temperature time series. And so what that says is that there's something wrapped, there's a whole suite of variables probably wrapped up in that open water data that, that is more correlated to, to the growth of the trees than is temperature. Okay, so let me see if I got that sequence right. You lose sea ice in the Arctic, that exposes water, that makes more evaporation, which dumps more snow on the land. The The snow acts as an insulator to protect the seeds so the trees can grow better and they have more moisture. Is that right? Absolutely. Yeah, well, it's not. It's, it's actually probably not moisture. We think it's more has to do with nutrients. So how will that change the ecosystem in the north? The difference between forest and, and tundra is pretty big in a number of ways. Trees store a lot of carbon in, in wood, which could be a good thing, but also trees are associated with disappearing permafrost. And they probably are both a cause and a consequence of permafrost loss. Trees are just darker in color. They're also tall. So that means that they absorb both in summer and winter. They absorb more solar radiation than tundra would. Tundra in winter would be covered in snow. The trees treetops will remain above the snow. And so that contributes on a global scale to more warming. So it's kind of a a feedback loop. But at the same time, we're hearing about the southern end of the forest Mm -hmm. receding because of uh, droughts and and increased temperatures. Yeah, exactly. And that's happening, you know, for instance, in, in northern Canada, even though much of the northern tree line is not advancing, the southern edge is you know, being affected by more disturbances and drought, as you say, the the pace of advance may not keep up with the pace of loss in the South. You know, we used to think that the tropical forests were kind of the lungs of the planet, but really it's the boreal forest. They are huge in the carbon cycling of, of the whole planet. So it could mean a reduction in, in that capacity. Dr. Maher, thank you so much for your time. Absolutely. Thank you, Bob. Dr. Colin Maher is an O-RISE Fellow with the Pacific Northwest Research Station of the United States Forest Service and affiliate faculty with the Environment and Natural Resources Institute at the University of Alaska, Anchorage. And that's it for Quirks and Quarks this week. If you'd like to get in touch with us, our email is quirks at cbc.ca or just go to the contact link on our webpage at cbc.ca quirks where you can read my latest blog or listen to our audio archives. You can also follow our podcast or get us on the CBC Listen app. It's free from the App Store or Google Play. Quirks and Quarks was produced by Rosie Fernandez, Amanda Buckwitz, and Sonia Biting. Our senior producer is Jim Levins. I'm Bob McDonald. Thanks for listening. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.